And so a lot of the states are doing that. A lot of the states, the Wayfair case, which allowed sales ta- sales tax on internet purchases. So it used to be that if you'd buy from an out-of-state company, Amazon, if they didn't have a Texas location like they didn't used to, or Wayfair or someone else, and it shipped into state, you didn't pay any sales tax, and that gave them a great advantage. Well, Wayfair changed that. Now every state can charge if there's an economic nexus rather than an actual nexus. You don't have to be in that state. You just have to do business in that state. So that allows the sales tax, and the same concept exists with income taxes for athletes and for businesses. If I go work in California for more than a few days, I have to pay a California income tax, even though I'm a Texas resident and I don't pay any income tax in Texas. But if I move to California, I don't pay taxes in Texas anymore. If a Californian moves to Texas, they're not going to pay taxes in California anymore. That's not going to happen. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this podcast, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's an ED at the end of experience for my fellow Marines like the guests I have today. And when you go to myexperiencedrealtor.com, you can click on podcasts and learn more about these episodes, download them from the different platforms. Of course, anytime you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, even if it's not in Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, click that button. We'll make sure you get somebody that looks after your interests when it comes to buying and or selling real estate. But today, we are here to talk about or with my very, very interesting guest. Mainly interesting (coughs) is because he too is a Marine and he does a lot of counting and there's a lot of jokes about Marines and math. So, Charles Reed, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Devil Dog? I'm doing well, sir, and thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, we start every one of these off with a joke. And one of my clients slash friend has decided that he's going to start writing my jokes for me because my jokes were that bad. So I got one for you. What is the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? I'll bite. <laughs> you will see one later in the other one after a while. Ah. Yeah, your friend needs to start writing jokes for you. <laughs> <laughs> that one was actually his. So Dan Verbowski, also a Marine. Okay, that explains. No, don't have him write your jokes. Right, that explains it all. Like he hit on the last one, this one, yeah, maybe a little bit of a miss. So Charles, let's 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 kind of. Go back in time a little bit, give it a little bit about your background, how you got to where you're at, and then let's dive into talking about some things that your company does, which I love the way you phrase this as insurance for payroll. That is absolutely wonderful. So where are you from? Well, I'm an Iowa boy. I grew up in the Midwest, graduated from high school, Central High School, Davenport, Iowa, 1966. Didn't know what to do with myself, turned 17, was working, and decided to join the Marine Corps. Dad was Navy, so I wasn't going to go Navy. So I joined the Marine Corps in April of 1967 for a four-year enlistment, did my basic at San Diego, ITR at Pendleton. Shortly thereafter, was transferred to Okinawa, 
to the Marine Corps Automated Service Center there. I was in computers, was trained as a computer programmer and systems engineer, got myself transferred to Vietnam. It was in the middle of the war. And uh, being young and dumb and a Marine, I wanted to go. I got down there and got myself transferred to a local combat outfit, infantry, infantry company. So I did interdiction around Red Beach for six months and then uh, came back to the United States, was stationed in Kansas City at the Marine Corps Automated Service Center out on Bannister Road. Met and married my wife. She had five kids when I married her. I claim insanity, but we were married for 45 years uh, before she passed. Tried to find a job in the civilian world and though I had IBM training and was a systems engineer and they just didn't ex think that my military experience applied. So I finally decided I'd go get the credentials Went to University of North Texas up in Denton. I had moved down here, got my bachelor's, my master's, sat for and passed my CPA exam while still in grad school. Went to work for Texas Instruments. Worked for major corporations for about 15 years. Realized I was never going to get to the top. I didn't have the political skills. I was unwilling to stab people in the back and toss them off the ladder. So at that point, to run a business, uh, my father had his own business. Ruth and I started our own 30 years ago this month. Well, 30 years ago this month, we incorporated. So uh, Get Payroll has been in existence from one form or another for over 30 years. So what drew you to payroll and CPA? I mean, I, I, I mean, I see how both of those are kind of can be one and the same, but that just seems to be a very different trajectory from going from computers to accounting and payroll. Well, computers to accounting is not that big of a, a jump, I don't think. And I, in college, I started taking accounting courses, business courses, and I just fell in love with accounting and in love with tax. I'm sorry. Well, let me, whoa, whoa. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. You fell in love with accounting. Yes. Okay. This, By the way, I am making all kinds of judgments towards you right now and assumptions and everything else because I had to take accounting when I did my MBA at TCU, and I would rather be waterboarded in Guantanamo Bay than to ever go through those classes. Great professors learned a lot. So what makes you love accounting? <laughs> well, like programming, it is a logical progression. Everything ties. Everything's in order. Everything's in a place. A well-crafted balance sheet is a thing of joy. I don't think you've probably ever heard that before, but... <laughs> no, I can, I can I, I 1,000% assure you I've never heard that ever phrased, especially coming from Marine. So, 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 so you, love, you love the accounting about it, the logical progression of things. Right. So you're you're doing this 30 years ago. What what kind of avenues does it take you down? Well, what had happened is I I'd gone into financial analysis and financial planning and so on in in side of corporations. Worked up to controller, chief COO, chief operating officer, treasurer, this kind of thing. Then when I started my own company, I bought a franchise. The franchisor went belly up due to mismanagement, and that's when we just turned the business into our own. But it was accounting, it was mobile accounting, and it had a payroll service bureau as an integral part of the business because payroll is necessary for small businesses and it has to be done right. It causes a lot of them huge amounts of pain. So did that, did a lot of accounting, 
taxes, tax work for small businesses and their owners. And I like the payroll side. So about 10 years ago, I sold off the accounting side to my then partner. He still offices in my building with me and just uh, concentrated on the payroll. I enjoy the employment taxes. I enjoy dealing with the business side. I'm not dealing with the, I'm not dealing with people's personal taxes. People get upset over that. There's all kinds of problems. Uh, they do stupid things. They want to do stupid things. And I have to talk them out of it and other, on and on and on. And so payroll is much cleaner to me without the emotion and without the personal aspects that personal tax has. So I enjoy it more. It's just more unemotional. <laughs> Coming from a Marine who has a lot of empathy, I'm sure that does not make sense one bit whatsoever, does it there, Charles? That is, that is, that's, that's really fascinating. And so you're, what would you say the biggest differences are from the methodologies of accounting to payroll? Does that make that question make sense? There's very little difference. It, again, is everything has to be done right. Everything has to be accounted for. Everything has to be in its place. All the deposits, all the reports, all the arithmetic has to be correct. We don't create balance sheets, but we deal with the IRS constantly, almost daily, because the IRS makes huge amounts of errors. And so our clients get tagged with penalties all the time that aren't valid, and we have to get them abated. So it's... Did, we, did I just hear you say that the government can be ineffective? At times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, the IRS is 100,000 employees. And they're, for the most part, they're nice people. They're mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, okay? They're, they're people. And, and they, they do their job and they get paid for it, but they are civil servants, they are under budget. Some of the technology goes back to the 1960s. They have inadequate training because of budget. If you ask the commissioner, and I did, what are the three biggest problems that the IRS has? He'll go, number one is budget. Number two is budget. And number three is budget. So they're always asking for more money. They are trying to get more efficient. They're using technology in some areas and getting better. But it's still 100,000 civil servants that at 5 o'clock, they go home or at 4. They are civil servants, and they don't have a profit motive. They don't have the drive of, of knowing that if you upset a customer, they'll go to the competition. There is no competition. They're the internal revenue service, and they never forget that. Oh, yeah. You know, in, in, interesting is the – the IRS is a very powerful entity. Very much um, so. If you go back to the days of Al Capone, they didn't get them on the crimes. They got them on the taxes, right? Yep, absolutely. If you look where a lot of time – like, so I worked on a human trafficking task force many years ago when I was in law enforcement. And when I got there, we – her name was Laura. I can't remember her last name, but she was a, a gun-toting IRS agent. And I was like mm – -hmm. Wow, I didn't know IRS agents carry guns. Like, man, I mean, do you got to hold it to somebody's head and get them to pay the taxes? Like, what? So, I, of course, naturally, I was throwing out all kinds of jokes. But we specifically had her on that task force because it might be that we were going to get them under some taxes 
then we could actually catching them <clears throat> being complicit in a lot of the crimes that we were investigating, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I had two people walk into the office one day here 20 years ago, asked to speak to me, and they showed badges to my receptionist at the time. So she came and got me, and I knew enough to realize they both had badges, not ID cards, but badges. So I took them into the copy room and made, had them make copies of their badges for me with the ID attached, took them into the conference room, and did exactly what I tell all my clients to do when somebody shows up with a badge. Talk to the lawyer. I called my attorney. Yeah. <laughs> I have literally done episodes on that exact same topic. And by yeah. the way, I'm retired law enforcement. And the first thing I tell people is, look, I'm retired law enforcement, and I'm telling you, have an attorney on speed dial. Yeah. Because there is – you want someone that is trained to articulate for you instead of you saying something that could be easily misconstrued to suggest something that never even happened. Martha right? Stewart went to jail for misleading FBI investigators because she had a civil attorney with her, not a criminal attorney. So I called my attorney that was an IRS agent and an SBA CID agent. I didn't know the SBA had a CID department. And they're both armed, of course. If they have a badge, they're carrying a gun. Turned out one of my clients had forged a IRS lien release to get a SBA loan. They questioned me. I went through all the stuff, gave them everything they wanted, of course. And they, they never bothered me again. But my ex-client spent two years in the federal penitentiary. Mm. Yeah, that's the, the money trail, right? And, and the interesting the interesting thing I, I find fascinating about money is I'm a very data-driven individual, right? I, I, I think that numbers don't lie. I think you can make numbers lie, but if you look at them long enough, you can figure out where somebody has altered them to tell a fiction story rather than a nonfiction story. Figures don't right. lie, but liars figure. <laughs> yes. I'm going to write that down. Say that one more time. Figures don't lie, but liars figure. That, that is... <laughs> That's that an is, accounting joke. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I got an old fellow double dog in here dropping some knowledge on me. Figures don't lie, but, but liars, liars figure. figure. But liars figure. That is, that is too funny. And because I do believe that numbers and money do t a story, right? Absolutely. So I, had a, so I just flew in today from my house in Pagosa. And so two days ago, I had an old Marine Corps buddy that stopped in town. And we were sitting here talking and we were talking about business. And, and he has just transitioned out of a nonprofit role that he had. And he's looking for his next venture. And, and I told him, I said, you can be profitable and not cash flow. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you can be profitable and be broke. Yep. Right? I said, so when you're really looking at businesses, you really want to see the cash flow because it doesn't matter how much money you make and how much money goes out and that you're profitable. If you don't have any money at the end of the day that you actually get to put in your pocket, the business is just a profitable business that doesn't make any money. Right. Right. And, and so and, and so he and I got on this really interesting topic talking through it. And I said, so you can follow the numbers to find out. And you may come to one of a couple of conclusions. 
One, as it turns out, there isn't anything that you can do to alter in your cost of goods, especially right now with supply chains being absolutely insanely messed up and all over the place that you just might as well shut the doors of the business because, yeah, it's paying everybody but you. It could be that you could alter some things because you find different suppliers or whatnot that allows you to create some margins. But then it could be that, as I've learned, as I went through one, two, three, four, now on my fifth accounting firm that, of course, is before I met you, that I've been very pleased with because the other previous four we're just missing all kinds of things to sit there and go, hey, why is this being written off here and not here? And it wasn't because I was doing anything intentional. I mean, we don't know what we don't know. That's why I was paying a professional to educate us because I didn't know and I didn't want to take the time to go. I, like I said, I did two accounting classes in my MBA and that was enough for me to go, this is why I will pay somebody to do this because I have no desire whatsoever to want to do this myself. And to be able to go, hey, as it turns out, because of your accounting principles, that's the reason you are profitable but not making any cash flow, mm-hmm. right? And so those are those are a lot of interesting concepts that when people go in and they want to, you know, especially since you talked about, you know, these small businesses and whatnot, is they go in there and be like, hey, I got a great product. All I got to do is sell the product for more than it cost me and I'm going to make money, right? Charles, right? That's how that works, right? That's where you start. <laughs> the day that accounting really became a passion of mine was a day that I really intuitively understood depreciation. I was in graduate school and I was walking, or senior, and I was walking down the hall in the business building up on the third floor. It was a bright, sunny spring day. And I'd been working depreciation problems and could do them, but I didn't have an intuitive grasp of it. And I'm going through this in my mind and all of a sudden it all clicked. And depreciation made all the sense in the world. So break that down. So I understand depreciation. You naturally understand depreciation. But many of our audience have heard the word but have no idea what that means. Well, depreciation is basically taking an asset and expensing it over its life. So if you have a a building that's good for 20 years, you expense a 20th of the cost every year as expenses. And this is why you can have a profitable business and no cash flow because you have an asset that you paid for three or four years ago. You're still expensing it, but it's not bringing you in any money, but you're still showing the expense. And that's also a reason you can have cash flow and a non-profitable business because you have expenses that you're taking against your revenue, but you're not paying them out as cash. It's just depreciation. So it's measuring the life of an asset and expensing that cost of that asset over the life. The trick is to pick the right life and to put the right costs into the depreciation mix. And all the, there's a lot of other things that go into it. And some of them are mandated. For instance, uh, the IRS will mandate that you will depreciate a building over you know, 29 and a half years. Whether it's good for 29 and a half, 50 or three computers, they may say it's five years. Well, you and I both know that a five-year-old computer is worthless. So sometimes you're mandated for tax purposes, and then you'll have, of course, tax books and financial books. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and they are not one and the same. Absolutely not. Yeah. You but do need you, to be able to – Will you go through that so the audience sure. understands? Yeah. Because 
for taxes, there's things that are mandated and required and set by law that you have to do. So you account for your revenue and your expenses based on tax rules. Then there's a separate set of financial rules, basically generally accepted accounting principles, which can be modified and hybrid and so on, but generally GAAP, G-A-A-P, generally accepted accounting principles. So you'll have one set of books under GAAP and another set under tax law. Now, you have to be able to reconcile between the two. So you have to know what the differences are. But you can easily have two sets of books, legally and ethically. In fact, also, tax accounting is normally cash, but it can be accrual. Well, financial accounting is normally always accrual. So if you're like my business, we're on a tax basis cash. If we get cash in, we report it. If we spend cash, we report it. We don't accrue expenses. In other words, for instance, you have a payroll, the business I'm in, and it's for the last week of December, but you're not going to pay it until the 10th of, of January. Well, under accrual, you have to report that payroll even though you haven't paid it out. Under cash, you only report it when you pay it. So those differences, those timing differences is what they're called, between accrual and cash also impact the two sets of books. So what's really interesting is, you know, again, I was alluding to an old Marine Corps buddy that came through town, and what I was explaining to him is, man, once you understand how money works, you can leverage it so much more. Yes. So I keep two circles in my life. I have my advisory circle, which are five people that are not industry specific who do not agree with me. And I go to them whenever I'm struggling through something because they're going to give me a different perspective when mm -hmm. it comes to business. Then I've got my money circle, which is my CPA, my private banker, my wealth manager, my civil attorney, my defense attorney. Because like you said, Martha Stewart, guess <laughs> what? People go, why, do you, why is your defense attorney in your money circle? I'm like, because it can cost money. If you do something dumb or you get accused of doing something dumb that you maybe or maybe didn't do. And it costs you and a great deal more than money. <laughs> a lot more. Maybe to have freedom. Ask Martha. So, oh, yeah. And, and so, but it was really interesting is a number of years ago, I was like, hey, we need a new company truck. You know, what interest rates do I need to look after? And the finance team was like, well, how about we do this? How about we secure, well, how about we open a secured line of credit by you securing it with moving X amount of dollars over into CD that opens up that secured line of credit where it's interest only. You use that to go purchase the asset. It's almost like a cash transaction, right? Because we're using cash. And of course, I'm probably butchering this, so you could probably totally correct it. I'm math for Marines trying to explain it the best way I could. And then once I was able to acquisition that asset, right, is it is a depreciating asset that has all of these write-offs through it to where at the end of two years, I've been able to use some depreciation, some other write-offs, I sell the asset and then I go buy another one that I would utilize for another two years, basically getting a new vehicle every two years, company right. truck every two years. And, and I said, I was literally almost making money from the vehicle, technically, right? Not necessarily cash flow, right. right, in my pocket. And so I was explaining to my Marine Corps buddy, and he was like, what, huh? And I said, yeah, that's why you get a good finance team right. that you surround yourself with 
that know how to take that right. and be able to accurately report it, right? Because I know that I never want to be on the bad side of the IRS, right? I mean, that's the reason I have this team of folks because, look, when you get in the mode of making a lot of money, it's not a matter of if but when your number gets pulled to get audited, right? Yep. And when it does, I want to be able to sleep comfortably and go, here's the team, go talk to them, all right? And they're always going to find something, right? I mean, it, 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 I think of any audited story, no matter how good the CPA team and the finance team is, they're always something. And, and I've always kind of felt like that's a law enforcement thing, right? You, even if it's a, hey, you owe us 100 bucks because of this one little thing, it's, a, it's them showing a win because they need to show a win, right? Th- they... Yes, they need to show wins to their supervisor. That's, you know, technically there is no quota. But if you're constantly, <laughs> if you're constantly turning in no change or refund audits after the selection process to get it to go to audit, your supervisor is going to probably wonder, you know, how diligent you are in some of these things because the IRS is out there to bring in revenue. That's their job. They are the revenue producer for the federal government. That's their job. So they're not interested in giving money away. They're interested in collecting money. Yeah, I I recently found out that a very good friend of mine from college, I had spoken with him in a number of years, and a super incredibly smart guy. I mean, guy was more smart than any human should be. And school bored him, right? So I think when we were sophomores in college he was like hey i remember pulling up my driveway and he was like yeah i think i'm gonna move to uh colorado and i and i said when and he goes well right now i got everything loaded and i said well, when did you decide that and he goes not this morning so then he went to colorado played around in colorado ended up finishing his degree ended up going getting the cpa graduate degree then going to law school and then he was practicing tax law and then when I peaked him a year ago, I found out, I was like, I was like, hey, man, I got a friend that needs some, like, tax legal stuff. Give me a good excuse to reach out to you. Do you want me to get you connected or what? And he was like, well, you probably don't want to do that. And I said, why? And he goes, well, because I'm a special agent with the federal or with federal government doing IRS stuff now. And I was like, <laughs> and I went, no shit. And I'll leave him nameless. But I was like, oh, you intentionally left me out of your background investigation. <laughs> And he goes, yeah, but I'm really good at what I do. <laughs> but it, it, but it's it, but it's funny because they are there to do a job, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, just like you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of law enforcement bashing that's been going on for the last year and a half, oh, and it's geez. like, look, yeah, you got a few bad apples, but guess what? They're there to do a job. They're there to protect you, but they're also there that if you commit a crime, you're gonna go to jail. Right. The the IRS is not out there to get you. The IRS is out there to collect all the revenue that you should be paying, all the taxes you should be paying. Now, there's sometimes that there's disagreement on what the law actually says. They have one position and a taxpayer may have another. And these are legitimate disagreements. And it requires a a judge at some level in the court to make that final determination of whether that uh, is correct from the IRS point of view or from the uh, taxpayer point of view. That's why I became a U.S. tax court practitioner is so I could take cases to the tax court for my clients and get a ruling. 
and we've been very successful in our cat tax court cases. We'll lose one one day. I have no doubt about that. But it gives us another bite at the apple and allows us to do these things. So there are legitimate disagreements on what the law actually means. If you've ever looked at what Congress writes and then what the regulations are that implement that, sometimes you're wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see this regulation. What does that have to do with this law that Congress wrote and passed? And for instance, on the PPP last year, the PPP loans that they made available for small businesses, Congress intended that they would be uh, forgiven. They wouldn't be taxable. Well, the way they wrote the law, they were taxable. They would forgive the loan, but anything that you spent the loan on was no longer deductible because you were using tax-free money and therefore it was not a deductible tax expense. So if you paid your employees, you couldn't deduct that payroll. And that made it effectively taxable as the loan. Congress had to go back and rewrite that because they hadn't looked at all the laws that were involved. And when the IRS looked at what the Congress had written originally, they said, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can make it non you make it non-taxable in that, but it's not deductible for the expenses. And Congress went, whoa, 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 wait, that's not what we intended. So they had to go back and correct it. Then the PPP regulations, basically they changed every day or two for three or four months as things came up because it was so poorly written and so general that all the regulations and rules changed a whole bunch of stuff and changed and changed and changed. So if you don't understand the regulations in detail, and sometimes they're not complete and sometimes they take years to write, you may have legitimate disagreements with the IRS agent on what the tax situation is. And it's a legitimate disagreement. And that's what you go to court for. Well, I can tell you as someone who's owned several businesses and still owns several businesses, I, I, I greatly value the professionals that give me guidance yes. on what to go do. Because I, I, I'm always fascinated by when somebody goes, well, I'll just do it myself. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so if, if, if you need a, a root canal and you've never been to dentistry school, you want to perform your own root canal? Why? It sounds painful. Like, why would you want to do that? One of my favorite stories is I was doing a tax return for an engineer, a complex multi-corporation partnership, consolidated tax return. And, and I presented him with a bill and he says, geez, I can do what you do. And I said, Joe, absolutely. You're a smart man. You can do exactly what I do. Go back to college for two years and get all the courses you need and then go into practice for 20 years and you can do what I do. <clears throat> and if I go back to college for two years and work in the engineering field for 20 years, I can do what you can do. So what? You've got to have experienced people, knowledge, it, you don't, and you don't get it in a heartbeat. And you can't do I – wouldn't, I wouldn't even think of doing a root canal on you. I do, I do a tax return for you. <laughs> I won't fix your car, okay, but I'll do your tax return. So you have to have your right. You must have experienced professionals that are knowledgeable. And good tax professionals will warn you that if we do it this way, you may get audited. And this will be 
the result, if that happens, this is what you'll end up owing. You may not. We're going to take this position and we'll document it and it's legal, but they may not accept it and we may have to fight it or give in if they audit you. It's called plain audit roulette. So this is this is this is really interesting for me. And the main reason I mean but it, let me let me expand on that is in today's day and age there are, as you were talking about, they were literally changing multiple times through multiple days and everything else, that things are evolving, that what you knew about tax law 20 years ago may be significantly different today, right? Oh, I was in graduate school and had just gotten done taking my course in gift and estate taxation. This was 1975. That December, as I finished the course, Congress passed a whole new set of laws for gift and estate taxes. Everything I just spent the last four months on in graduate school was gone in a heartbeat, in one signature by the president. All that work was a waste of time. I had to relearn it all over again for different laws. And it happens every year. Laws change all the time. And if you don't keep up on it, and if you're not in the field, you're not going to. I get five newsletters a week from the Internal Revenue Service about various aspects of taxation every week. I get trade journals every month. I get half a dozen different ones, Accounting Today, Journal of Accountancy, Journal of Taxation. If you ever have, if you ever have insomnia, I recommend the Journal of Taxation. Okay, that puts me to sleep. And I love taxes. So why do you think these changes happen so frequently and so often? What do you I mean, think it almost seems like counterintuitive sometimes, no. right? What does a congressman have to sell to get campaign contributions? Mm-hmm. Tax breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that's they, they sell tax breaks to get campaign contributions. And things change. The world changes. Uh, morality changes. Finance changes. Uh, a lot of things change constantly. So tax law has to adapt. We couldn't possibly uh, run the government off the tax law of 1913 when it first came in. Uh, It just wouldn't work. And the other thing is, when Congress passes a law, they've got 535 members of Congress that voted on this, and they have a few thousand staff people that worked on these complex tax bills. After they pass it, you have several hundred thousand very smart, very educated, very experienced professionals figuring out how to get around it. So all of us CPAs, tax attorneys, we immediately go to work figuring out, ah, where are the loopholes? And the moment we find them, we start to exploit them and spread it around and tell our friends and write up articles on it to get published, to get our name out there, and this kind of thing. So when that happens, Congress has to go back and start plugging loopholes. The laws change again. And if the loopholes get uh, too overwhelming, they just change the whole law and start over. So So in your opinion, doing this for many years, because I'm sure this experience was a very (laughs) easy journey, and I'm sure it was just gifted to you (laughs) overnight, 
right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't painful at all, right? I mean, it was just easy breezy, right? It's, it, I'll tell you, it's not like combat. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes it might have been easier when people try to kill you than deal with the IRS. <laughs> mm, there's days, yeah. <laughs> so, when do you, and, and, and I bring this up from a very ignorant standpoint, is... There, I remember years ago, and I'm trying to remember how long ago it was, Is, and I'm sure this has come up several times and probably still does, is moving to a sales tax and away from an income tax kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like what, and I've heard the different arguments and all this, our tax stuff works, our tax stuff doesn't work. You know, or, you know, our last president where people were like, well, where's his taxes or so forth is, I mean, is our tax system that we have as good as it gets? Or is there something that we can do different that is more beneficial for income producing for the government versus what we currently have in the system that we have? A flat tax or a sales tax would be far more easy to regulate. I mean, it's very simple. Sales tax would be very simple. It's already set up. Everybody already charges sales tax. But Congress does social engineering through taxes. Do you think they're going to give that up? Do you think they're going to give up the ability to control your life, make things difficult? Remember when they put taxes on luxury boats and drove all the U.S. boat luxury boat manufacturers out of business? That was social engineering. They thought people shouldn't that could afford luxury boats should pay more, okay? So they put a tax on them. Cigarettes, huge tax on cigarettes, huge tax on alcohol, tariffs on imported shoes, all these things, all these taxes uh, are a way for the Congress and politicians to social engineer the American way of life. They're not going to give that up. That's their power. They're not going to give up social engineering. They like to do it. They like to be in charge. They wouldn't be in Congress if if they didn't. They like to tell people how to live. That's why they go to Congress, so they can lord it over you and be the elite lawmakers. They're not going to give that up. So dreams of a, of a flat tax or a fair tax or a sales tax are simply that, dreams. Congress is never, ever, ever going to give up that power. So a uh, very interesting thing that there is a number of reasons why this country went through a revolution several hundred years ago. But one of the ones that rings out is taxation without representation. Oh, happens to us all. Right. I, I, I have an office in Louisville. Okay. I don't have any say-so in Louisville city taxes because I live across the lake in Hickory Creek. So I don't vote for the people who set tax rates in Louisville. So I get taxed without representation. Pure and simple. It happens all the time. So to all kinds of people. One of the now this is a rumor. I don't have any validity behind this. Such as, so I study a lot of migration. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean that's what helps me in my business. Where are people moving from? Where are they moving to? Because they're going to need to sell an asset from where they're going from to purchase an asset of where they're going to. Absolutely. And there's a lot of migration coming out of the great state of California that is going to places like Texas, Tennessee, and Florida, and many other places, but the three of the top ones. Right. And one of the 
rumors that I hear, and of course, it's just talking a lot with clients and whatnot that are coming here. It's like, yeah, California is trying to pass this because there is so much migration leaving the state, and they are a very highly taxed state. Right, very high. To support a lot of social programs is that their fear is losing some of their income base off of those taxes that they're trying to put things in place to be able to tax you as a Californian, even though you now may be a Texan because you left California. What do you got on that? I understand their desire, and what they're going to do is they're going to steal the money from you when you leave, but they're not going to be able to tax you in Texas. There are constitutional laws and state laws that, that prevent that. Now, if you maintain a residence in California, yeah, they're going to tax you wherever you're at. We run into this all the time with people working in different states. But if you pack up and you leave and you come to Texas, even if you go to Austin, because you want to still be a liberal, you're not going to continue to pay California taxes regardless of what they want. Because how are they going to enforce it? Are they going to send a California revenue agent to Austin, Texas to seize your property? Good luck on that. I think the Texas, Texas Rangers, Texas Rangers, would have a real hard yeah, time with I was that. Say, this is Texas baby. <laughs> Plus, in all probability, that even if they're semi-liberal, if they've taken on the Texas culture, they're armed. And you know, you go and you try to break into their house to steal their property, they'll shoot you, and the local sheriff will be glad to have the body hauled away. Well, I mean, that's why we <laughs> joke. Why we're not really concerned with tex- with uh, terrorists coming to Texas because we have rednecks, 12-gauges, and Budweiser, right? Absolutely. And, uh, now, this does bring up an interesting question, though, is the world was changing long before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But then after the pandemic, the world really changed. This thing called Zoom, working remotely, you no yep. longer have to sit in a brick-and-mortar Louisville location, you could actually do that this week in Colorado and then next week in California and then next week in New York. How do you, what do you feel will come out of that as far as some of these states going, hey, wait a minute, if you're going to sit in our state and work for a week, we want ours. If you're a Dallas Cowboy and you go play in New York, you pay income taxes for that income for that game for that game, for that three hours. So that already exists. Now, it normally doesn't happen to low-end people. They did it with the athletes because they're talking huge sums of money. You know, you're paying a a football player $12 million, well, or $16 million, that game is worth a million dollars in income to them. So you get to tax that in New York for state income taxes. And of course, now, if you live in a state that has state income taxes, you get taxed in both places, but you get a credit uh, against the higher one for the lower one. But of course, if New York taxes you, you have no Texas tax to offset that. So New York just gets everything, which is too bad. But that's that's the law, and that's they're able to get away with that. And so a lot of the states are doing that. A lot of the states, the Wayfair case, which allowed sales ta- sales tax on internet purchases. So it used to be that if you'd buy from an out of state company, Amazon, if they didn't have a Texas location like they didn't used to, or Wayfair or someone else, and it shipped into state, you didn't pay any sales tax, and that gave them a great advantage. Well, Wayfair changed that. Now every state can charge if there's an economic nexus rather than an actual nexus. You don't have to be in that state. You just have to do business in that state. 
So that allows the sales tax. And the same concept exists with income taxes for athletes and for businesses. If I go work in California for more than a few days, I have to pay a California income tax, even though I'm a Texas resident and I don't pay any income tax in Texas. But if I move to California, I don't pay taxes in Texas anymore. If a Californian moves to Texas, they're not going to pay taxes in California anymore. That's not going to happen. So it would seem like it would be very hard to track something like that. So someone that's very nomadic, moving around a lot. Absolutely. I've got a couple of friends that um, do marketing and computer um, programming and so on. They live in an RV. They travel around the country constantly. They're never in any place more than a week or two, but they maintain a post office residence in Texas, so yeah. they don't pay any state income taxes. Technically, if they're in New York for a week, they ought to file a New York return and an Oklahoma return, an Arkansas return, every other state that they stop in and do work in, the money they earn in that state that day, they should be paying income tax on it in that state. They don't. And they're too small to worry about for the, the various states. It's not worth their effort. But if it's big bucks like a football player or a baseball player, it's worth the effort to go after them. So a lot of migration going on. Right. A lot of migration coming from blue states to red states. Yes. I'll use Texas and California only as an example. Right. It's not a political statement. I don't talk politics on here. I really don't care what people think anyways. Is you have folks that are moving to Texas because it's more affordable to live in Texas, but then they start voting for the same things that caused them to leave right. a, a, a state where it was high tax, yes. right? They, they bring their, their, their bias with them, yes. Right. So do you see Texas at some point in the future moving to an income tax like a lot of these states have? There's a lot of push for that, but it is in the Texas Constitution, and it would require a constitutional amendment in Texas, a Texas constitutional amendment to implement a income tax in Texas. That means more than half of the voters that vote in that election are going to have to vote for an income tax. I don't see that happening. I may be wrong. I've been wrong before. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't call the last election, so I've been wrong before. But I don't see that happening in Texas anytime soon. If it the state becomes liberal enough, sure, they can impose an income tax. But I don't expect it to happen in, in my lifetime, for now, sure. A lot of these conservative Texans will own beachfront property in California at that point. <laughs> Might as well. Right? I mean, if, that, if the state of California went red instead of blue and reduced the tax, I mean, you could do, I mean, that's the funny thing is people, I believe, move money tells all yep. right and so like i was literally making this joke so when i got off the plane i went straight to get my hair cleaned up because i've been up in the mountains for a couple weeks and and i was joking around with the guy that cuts my hair as i said yeah i said everybody wants you know conservatives want to be a staunch anti-immigration until it affects their wallet because they can't get anybody to come to work Right, yes. and then and then you know people people like to vote with passion 
until it affects them financially. Well, right? financially is passion. Okay. Sure. Fair so, enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Know, it's, fair enough. It's, it affects your lifestyle. It affects your uh, way of life. It affects your retirement. It affects a lot of things. So it, you can be very passionate about income and assets and retirement and funds and paying for college and everything else. Just because it's money doesn't make it wrong. But yeah, people tend to vote their pocketbook. They always have. Go back to the, the taxation without representation. People were being taxed with, as, as you were talking about, without being able to control where the money was being spent. It just went to the king, and they resented that. And that was part of the American Revolution. Taxation without representation, foreign domination, all those kings. But finance was part of it. It always is. You know, finance allows us, money allows us to eat, allows us to have a house, clothes, a car, fly an airplane, have a business. All these things. So it's it's integral to ourselves. I mean, we're not cavemen living in a cave, growing a few crops that we hoe with a stick and, and you know, killing the local animals to eat. You don't need money then. But once you put in trade or houses or, traf- uh, or split labor into more than one occupation, uh, I got to pay the guy to build the house. I got to pay the guy to pump the ga- pump the oil to turn into gasoline for the car, money drives everything. It does. It, it, it absolutely one million percent does. So people vote yeah. with, with passion about their money. <laughs> so speaking of money and income, through a short few years of experience, you happen to write a book on this. Well, I, I've written four books. My recent, most recent one is the payroll book. So we wrote the book on payroll. It's basically 30 years of experience distilled down to 95,000 words. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other you know, fine bookstores. But I will make you an offer. For your listeners, for your viewers, I will be glad to give them a free book. No shipping, no handling, just a free book. If they'll go to the website, thepayrollbook.com, and enter in the discount code. USMC. USMC. Let's make it USC. You suckers miss Christmas, <laughs> right? I've done that. <laughs> time to time or two. First time, first time I was back in the States and got my E5 stripes, there was duty on Christmas Day, and it had to be an E5 or above. I was the most junior E5, mm-hmm. so guess who got Christmas duty? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or we had another one is you signed the motherfucking yeah. contract, right? And Well, let's uh, – So for free book, yeah. payrollbook.com, uh, USMC, and we'll send them a free book. That's fantastic. And, and just kind of uh, some high-level points is – Somebody reads the book cover to cover because it sounds very interesting reading about payroll. Does it have pictures? Is it a pop-up book? Do you have a v- special version for Marines that has like pop-up, you know, cartoons and stuff? Well, if they'll let me know they're a Marine, I do have that pop-up version. You do so. have the pop-up. So what are what are what, what would you say are the three main bullet points that somebody would take away from going through your book? Well, there's a lot of things in there, but it's basically the the book explains how to do payroll how to interface with the Internal Revenue Service about payroll and the states, the regular, the taxing authorities, and then the other associated things that are around payroll, like SGEs and PEOs and handbooks and so on. 
So those are the three big areas. So they get the book. They're like me. They can't read very good. Then they can just reach out to you, and you're going to give them some assistance to get through all that. Well, that's why I give out the free book, so, so they have my name and number. <laughs> and when they when they realize they need somebody with more experience and Do you have and your thumbs knowledge. up like Buddy Jesus with a smile? Like, I can, I can, I can help you out with this. <laughs> but it's and, – and, and I'm available. You know, Get Payroll is the website, so getpayroll.com on the web. My email is cjr at getpayroll. So who is what size companies are your target demographics for that? We basically go after the under 50 employee market. Okay. We handle some bigger ones. We've Some have grown for us, and some have come to us that are bigger, up to a few hundred. This is about the time you get to 500, people tend to take it in-house because of the, the cost aspect uh, and the complexity. Because there's always something. There's always somebody that wants something different, something special with the more employees you have. Uh, five-person payrolls are real easy. 500-person payrolls are really complex because of 500 individuals that all want things their way. So we go after the under-50 market, which is 95% of U.S. businesses. So we like that. Well, our competitors can have the other 5%. So how many businesses would you say ballpark that you have? That we, we've got well over 1,000. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of... And, and we do we do yeah. payroll all over the country. I got into the internet back in the '90s when it was relatively new, and was set up our payroll, and we're doing payroll all over the country. So we've got clients in probably 48 states at the moment. I don't think we have anybody. No, we picked up somebody in Maine. I don't think we have anybody in Alaska at the moment. We have them in Hawaii. We have them in Maine, Florida, Texas, California, Illinois. You name it. So the ones that are in Maui, do you take business trips that you write off to go out there and see how their payroll is doing? Yes. <laughs> you, you understand that aspect of business travel, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I, li- I literally live in business travel because, I mean, aside from the different aspects, right? So um, in the real estate realm, right? So I run a fund that invests. I run the number one team for Sotheby's here in Fort Worth. But I've also been number one at Sotheby's three years in a row, maybe four years in a row. We'll find out here. And the final numbers come in at the end of this year on referring deals to other places. And what I mean by that is, you know, let's just say when people hear real estate agent, there's more of a likelihood that they're going to think as soon as they hear that title that they are morons. Right. For good reason, because many people in this industry have helped create that image and branding for so long. And that was a a thing that we really learned about when my wife sold her real estate company to Sotheby's. And I learned about the global networking and how many deals can be done. And I don't mean just like someone leaving Texas or coming to Texas, but... Uh, a Marine Corps buddy of mine that was leaving Kansas and moving to Oregon, mm-hmm. right? And so, but I've interviewed a lot of agents, but there's many a times I go visit them because I want to see what they're doing. I want to, you know, anybody can sound good and sexy on a phone, but when you go and you see what kind of production they do, then that allows me, that, that has allowed me to build a list 
of seasoned professionals in just about every marketplace. And that's where I did a lot of traveling was going because you can lie to me on the phone, but it's really hard to lie to me face to face, right? Absolutely. Hey, man, oh, come on, I'm retired law enforcement, right? I'm like a human lie detector. I can see that. And so we did exercise a lot of travel mm-hmm. for those you know, specific purposes was to be able to go and do that. Or we had a lot of business that was getting generated out of Mexico City coming to mm-hmm. the United States, yeah. especially when Lopez Obrador became president a few right. years ago where I was down in Mexico City every 60 to 90 days talking to wealth managers, see anybody touch money because if somebody is going to buy an asset in the US, the first thing they're gonna do is talk to the money. And I wanted that when they talked to the money, I was gonna be the first person that they called. So we were generating more business that naturally just came to a sudden halt when the pandemic hit, as far as the traveling portion of that went because everything kind of died down. Or even when I have clients that Man, they just want they want my expertise, right? So I had one client that was like, hey, I'm thinking about buying a condo as an investment property in Cabo. Will you go with me? And I was like, threaten me with a good time, right? Let's go, right? And and we went down there, met with some seasoned professionals I knew down there and were able to show them. And actually, he was this close to buying one, except for two weeks later, the entire planet shut down, right? Yeah. And so, so yes, so it doesn't suck that those are the perks of when you have to do things. Like, like I, I always fly first class. Mm-hmm. And people go, how do you afford to do it? And I'm like, how do you afford not to? Because for every two to three flights I'm on, the person sitting next to me, people naturally get a little interested when they hear real estate. They see that I'm not some, you know, ex-stripper who got a license to go sell real estate. That it's like, hey, my team is full of lawyers, MBAs. We're Sotheby's. We're a global recognized brand. We've been number one. We, we do heavy financial analysis on assets. We're not your typical, hey, do you like the curtains? Let's buy this house kind of thing. And so many a times I'll pick up referrals being more likely to pick up a referral sitting in front of the plane than back of the plane. Yes. Right. So actually it's been really funny is the amount of money I've generated by being in front of the plane has greatly overshadowed the amount that I've spent on first class tickets. Right. You know, I agree with you on that. I'm not sure if the IRS would accept that argument, but you know, as long as you've paid the ticket, talk to Matt Fowler down in Cleveland, Texas. That's my CPA. He's the one. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you've paid for the ticket, it's, yeah. it's deductible. But I, I wouldn't try to justify the up up charge for the first class okay. by doing that. But there there was a there was a doctor in in, in Florida, and he had a big fishing boat. And he deducted the entire cost of that fishing boat on his tax return. The IRS audited and said, you can't do that. And the guy says, it's a business expense. The IRS said, bullshit. And so the guy pulled out his ledger and he showed him that he took guests out on the fishing boat every time it went out, other doctors. And those that referred him business, because he was a specialist, got invited back. Those that didn't refer him business after two or three trips, he never took out again. So it was a way to use entertainment, fishing, to generate revenue. And it went to court, and he won. So there's some ways and sometimes you can take and, and make these things work from a tax point of view, as you do from a revenue point of view with first class. So Absolutely. I mean, everything from a third base coach of a major baseball team whose son was 
going to school at a university in Texas and said, you know, I've been thinking about buying a house and I, mean, I might as well have a mortgage rather than what he's paying in rent. Exactly. Or somebody that was a very known author that was sitting next to me. It was like, hey, I'm getting ready to sell my house in XYZ. Or one situation, which was, this is actually a really funny one, owned a equestrian ranch and was like, hey, I think I'm going to fire my agent. Do you have somebody? And I was like, yeah, actually, I've got a very good person right there. And I was like, who's the agent? And I kid you not, you couldn't make this up. And he named the person that I would refer to. And I was like, (laughs) really? So I just kind of sat there with my poker face. And as soon as I got off that plane, I called my buddy. And I was like, hey, bro, you're fixing to lose a deal. And then he explained it was a very contentious divorce situation. He was like, there's nothing I could ever do right in this situation. And it's so because that's why generally I am sitting in yeah, there is because absolutely. I'm looking for prospects. And sure. luckily, Laura, my business partner and wife, being a lawyer, she details where every single referral comes from. So yeah. I feel pretty confident that if the IRS came up and I could go, well, 30% of the time that I'm in the front of that plane, I am picking up business. So why would I risk not picking up more business by sitting in the front of the plane? Because I'm more likely to be sitting someone in the front of the plane that has the kind of disposable income to do things rather than the person that's sitting next to the bathroom in the very back seat of the plane. But let's go back to what I was talking about earlier about tax law. Sure. If they, Congress decided that first class was unnecessary and that you would only be able to deduct economy class, the fact that you made money in first class wouldn't matter because that would be tax law. You would have that, you'd only be able to deduct economy class or business class, whatever they ruled, but on your tax return, but on your financial return, you would, on your financial books, you would have booked the whole expense. Or it opens up a whole other book of things of, well, when you agreed to be that person's representative, what state were you flying over when that happened? <sighs> now that, right? that one... Oh, that one could be a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. And so I maybe we just won't publish this episode in case one of them is listening. But no, I, well, I, you what, know what I would worry about more than that would be if California really starts to insist that they pay, that the California National Guard might start forcing down planes in California to tax the passengers. Well, <laughs> we're luckily, not Belarus yet, but luck, we might be. <laughs> luckily, I'm a Marine. It won't come without a fight. <laughs> Speaking of speaking of being a Marines, so I I like to throw out landmines, and I always offer it to my guests of whether or not they want to step on this landmine. If you don't, that's cool. We'll actually take out this portion of the episode. But you being a Vietnam veteran, yes, right, and you're you're having the opportunity to witness. Two, yeah, you know where I'm going. Yeah, with this I know one, where right? you're going. Sorry. So two, two exits. Yeah. Out of long fighting wars, is there is there any perspective that you have on what what's going on down there in Afghanistan, especially with everything of us exiting Vietnam many years ago in your time back then? They've both been handled very, very poorly. Whether we should have been in Afghanistan or in the beginning we should have just bombed them for the 12th century back to the 6th century is, is a matter of conjecture. But having been there 20 years, the pullout was as bad as or worse than Saigon in 75. 
And I watched that. I fought there, and I was appalled. The only thing that I have to say in favor of the Afghanistan pullout is we only wasted just under 3,000 troops as opposed to 55,000 in Vietnam. But it's another defeat for the U.S. It's ignominious. It's a terrible way. We basically surrendered to the Taliban as we surrendered to the Viet Cong, unnecessarily in both cases. I mean, we have the finest, most powerful military in the world that the world has ever seen. There's no war we can't win. I mean, we could we could turn Afghanistan into, you know, smoking ruins if we chose to. We could kill everyone there. It's not a big deal in, in, in terms of, of projecting power. Not that I would suggest we do so. But the, the pullout was extraordinarily badly done. It should have been the American citizens first, the Afghan allies second, the equipment third, and the troops last. Instead, we left billions of dollars of equipment for terrorists. Not that most of it will matter because most of it they can't maintain. The aircraft will be worthless in six months. The vehicles won't last much longer than that. Basically, what will be left after a few years is rifles and pistols. That's all that will survive. And a lot of those won't survive their usage. That's why they use AK-47s because, man, you can run that thing through the mud and it'll still fire. You do that with an M4 or an M16 or even an M14, you're going to have to clean and take care of it. It just won't hold up to the abuse that tribal primitives will right. put it through. So I'm not too worried about that, though people are touting that. But we spent billions and billions of dollars and 3,000 lives, and what did we get for it? Stone Age militants coming in and raping young girls and forcing them into uh, fixed marriage and putting burqas on them and killing people that worked with us. Um, it was a waste just like Vietnam ended up being. I've been very, very conflicted over it because with your generation in Vietnam and my generation with Afghanistan is that, you know, and, and you're right, the, the, one of the major differences is the number of the names on a wall. Yeah. And if anybody in here has never walked the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., you should do it. I don't care how hard of a human being you are. My dad was a Vietnam vet, right? And I was in tears. And I'm not a tear up kind of guy because it's just you start there where it just starts to grow and you see the number of names on the wall and you're just like, man, what the what the hell? And I don't touch on this topic because I'm intending for it to be a political topic because I'm a firm believer in money doesn't discriminate, but the people that spend it do. So I try not to pigeonhole myself in one way or another. But I have been incredibly disappointed by our elected officials on this one. Now, on one side, I'm like, hey, look, we can't fight wars forever. I mean, me and my Marine Corps buddy say, hey, look, man, we've been here 20 years. Yeah, I mean, we, we absolutely, it's time to go, right? It's time to get out, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, after 20 years, guess what? You can't overpower peasants who throw rocks, right? That live in mud huts. I mean, it's just, it, it is what it is, right? But how we executed the withdrawal is... It's, it's really left a a gap in my soul, yes. right, of going, wow, really? Did we not learn anything go from 75? I mean, we're not talking centuries ago, right? I know. 
<laughs> we're talking, we're talking what, 40, 46 years ago? Most of the people and, in Congress remember it. Yeah. Some and, people in Congress were there. Yes. And, and it's, it's, no, they didn't learn. Yeah. And the military leadership that we have now apparently didn't learn from the last war. And the political leadership obviously did not. And we should have learned with Vietnam, we can't do country building. You're not going to take rock-throwing peasants and make them into Democrats and Republicans that, that you know, treasure a democracy and will fight for it. We didn't then. We didn't in Vietnam. We didn't in Afghanistan. The Afghanistan army, with all the billions of dollars we threw at it, and it took them all of overnight to say, oh, I'm out. Collapse went back to their huts and their, you know, multiple wives and uh, probably uh, are back in the Taliban where they started originally. Yeah. So we were fooled. We should have – we went in for a specific purpose to knock down the terrorist activities. We should have done that in two weeks and left. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of how our spec ops community has evolved to go in there – Hit them, kill them, and get out, right? That's, if you're a bad guy, that's bad girl, bad guy, bad person that's trying to hurt the U.S., go in, kill them, get out, right? Old, old Marine Corps saying, yeah. kill them all and let God sort it out. No, I was 100, 100%, <laughs> right? And, and we're not country building. We can't do it. You know, and it's just, this is a topic I brought up on a number of my shows is that, you know, look, when you go – into the military, namely a combat arms type unit, especially Marine Corps. Every you know, every Marine is a rifleman, right? Is you know, look, they didn't send us to boot camp to learn how to shake hands and kiss babies, right? You know, no. hearts and minds. And their first objective was to be able to go. We're going to teach you how to kill the other one better and faster than they can try to kill you. Yeah. Right, and we were very effective. Our our, our, at it. our job is not to die for our country; yeah. it's to make the other poor bastard die for his That's country. Exactly it. Yeah, and and it's nothing personal. This no. is what, and this is this is what I would try to explain to folks: is it's nothing personal because I guarantee that the dude pointing the gun at me, I guarantee he's thinking about his family and getting home, just like I'm thinking about my family and getting home. Absolutely. So if it comes down to pulling straws, he better have hoped that he didn't pull the short straw because I'm going to knock him down. It's just the way it is. It's just the way right? it is. And people want to politically correct things like, oh, wow, you know, we should go do this and we should hold their hands and give them flowers. And I'm like, do you understand that when we're over there, and by the way, they brought the fight to us, Right. Is they said, oh, wow, we're going to do that. We're going to go hang out in the U.S. and tell them how much we love their culture and shake hands with them and everything else. No, they wanted to hurt us, and they demonstrated they wanted to hurt us. Now, we probably made the mistake of staying over there a little too long, right? Mm -hmm. Should have probably done some better planning. But guess what? This world is full of evil, evil people that really, really want to hurt us. And by the way, when you're sitting there going, oh, we should just give them a flower, do you think that they're going to look at me and look at you is to giving them the flower and go, well, we'll let the flower one go. No, they're going to kill the one with the flower first because that's the easier target. Yep. And, and, and people live in this fallacy of this world. And, and the reason I bring this up, not just to be a, a landmine on it, because I do think it's relevant with you being in Vietnam and then, and then watching what's going on in Afghanistan, is people need to realize that the business world is not much different. It's not at all different. Right. 
Absolutely. I there's, agree a lot of, there's a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing. It's, it's kill or be killed. It's, and they it, will take advantage of you. In a heartbeat. And they will get theirs on you. Yep. There's a reason we have to have things like the IRS and the, and, and, and federal law enforcement and, and all of this. Because guess what? If you don't have a governing body that tries to do what they can to help protect the flower child then guess what? The flower child's going to get eaten and put up for a three-course meal. It's just the way it is. And so it does help me bring this back around to go, the best way to arm yourself, whether you're in the military or you're in business, is to surround yourself with the best fighting force that you can have. You are a fighting force for a business. Absolutely. Right? You're the Marine Corps for the business, right? You know, except you, you, you exchange, like... Calculators for lead bullets. <laughs> yeah, but dealing with the IRS is is about as close to combat as you can get without a gun. Okay, <laughs> they're out to take your money, and and if need be, put you in jail. Yeah. Okay, and I'm out there to make sure that doesn't happen. So uh, that's why we're compliance experts. That's why we're insurance for your payroll. We protect our clients. We advocate for them. For every client, we take a Form 2848, limited power of attorney, which gives me the absolute right to advocate for my clients with the IRS as if I am them. Because I tell my clients, don't talk to the IRS. You'll get upset, you'll yell, you'll scream, and it's counterproductive. And I know this because the last time they came after me for some tax situations, I found myself on the phone calling them names and yelling at them. Exactly what I tell my clients not to do. Don't ever do that. And I'm about halfway through the conversation, and I'm, I'm yelling at this poor IRS agent on the line because they've screwed up. And I'm going, Charles, don't do that. But I can't stop myself because it's my money they're trying to steal from me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I get it. And, 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 I, and I, I, I don't I – don't, shortlist this from seeing how you converted what you learned how to do in the Marine Corps to essentially do the same thing in the business world, right? You just changed the type of uniform you were wearing, right? You went from Marine Corps green to blue blazer and a white button-up shirt to be able to deliver the same value in the same service for your clients. But it is. It's training and experience. You know, if you want if you want to go into combat, you prefer to have a couple of old grizzled gunnery sergeants that have been at it for 15 or 20 years that know all the tricks. You want them telling you what you listen to the first sergeant. You're you're in a new private out there. You listen to the first sergeant when he tells you. Because he's been there. He's done it. He survived it. Not the la- not the Lance Corporal that goes, hey watch this. <laughs> Famous last words. Watch this. <laughs> I'm also a pilot. That's the last thing I ever want to hear from a pilot is watch this. Watch no, it. get away from me. Get away from me. <laughs> so, Charles, I like to wrap every one of these up by saying, hey, look, if you if we had a time machine that we could go back and talk to 20-year-old self, mm-hmm. not that 20-year-old self would listen, but if we knew that 20-year-old self would listen to one nugget of advice. Now, there's an encyclopedia of a million things we'd want to tell 20-year-old self. What is the one thing that you would tell 20-year-old Charles if you could turn back the hands of time? Invest. Don't spend it on beer and women and cigarettes. I used to smoke and drink. Take a little bit and invest. 
whether it be in the market or in real estate or whatever, start doing it when you're 20. And I'd be living on the Riviera now if I'd, if I'd done that, okay? I'd be a very rich man. So that's what I would tell my 20-year-old self is compound interest is the most wonderful and powerful thing in the world and utilize it. Yeah, man, boy, I tell you, when you talk about all the booze and everything else, I mean, I could probably be a retired gajillionaire, might even be worth more than Elon Musk with the amount that as Marines we've uh, spent on alcohol and fun. Oh, right? yeah, or absolutely. Learning opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> Call it as you will. I mean, I spent two years overseas, so I had a lot of opportunity to oh, have learning yeah. experiences. <laughs> Come back, you're like, hey, man, I'm a king on the 1st and the 15th, and I'm broke from the 2nd to the 14th and from the 16th to the 31st. Absolutely. So, Charles, people want to learn more about you. Where do they go? What, I mean, where, where, where do we put, what do we put out there for you when someone says, hey, I need some of this payroll love? Where do they go? GetPayroll.com on the web. That's the best place to go. Uh, they're free. Feel free to call me. My phone number is real simple, 972-353-0000. Oh, wow. That the is. only good thing oh. GTE ever did for me. <laughs> <laughs> and my email is cjr at getpayroll. At getpayroll. So get if you need payroll, get payroll. So if you're driving down the road or you're somewhere you couldn't scribble that information down real quick, you can always go to our website, my experienced experience with an ED, my experienced realtor.com. Click on podcast, click on Charles Reed, and you can don't forget to use the code USMC for him to send you a free payroll book or you need to get in touch with his services. He will be there. And of course, you can always go back to the landing page and click find a trusted professional if you want to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet. Have a good trusted professional. Thank you for coming, Devil Dog. I appreciate your time, Marie. My pleasure. Good show. What'd you think? I enjoyed it. Good.